to a concert with you guys sitting behind me. Evidently, you have sung together. Wonderful, wonderful music. Oh, my. Be a lot of wonderful music in heaven, won't there? Mm, songs to the Lamb. Wow. Well, I'm glad to be with you today. If you weren't here in Sunday school, I am the uh, National Field Representative of the Associated Gospel Churches. I have a display out in the foyer. Uh, if you are not on our newsletter, we'd love to have you there. If you'll just print your name and print your email, it'll come to your phone or to your computer. If you don't want to get it that way, if you like a hard copy, just print, print your name and your address and we'll send you a hard copy. I do have some hard copies out there and uh, if you would like to get one of those, just make sure uh, you pick one up. We'd love to have you do that. One correction, I made a mistake in the um, Sunday School Hour. I said North American Baptist University. I should have said North African Baptist University is who that we're are partnering with in, uh, there in Zambia. So I made that correction. And with that, I'd have you turn with me to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 3. Writing uh, 50 years ago, Francis Schaeffer, theologian and Christian philosopher, called our nation a post-Christian society. He said, further, we are witnessing the death of Western civilization. Today, the Christianity that was once part of our nation's fabric, that created some cultural props to hold us up, and some standard to judge behavior, has all but disappeared. Today, moral freedom, defined by as long as we love, reigns as God. We are returning as a society to the days of the New Testament. The cultures of Greece and Rome knew nothing of the true God. They knew nothing about biblical morality and virtue. The culture of Paul's day was totally and comprehensively pagan. The little house churches in the New Testament were born in a culture with no Christian influence. The whole world was literally engulfed in idolatry and every form of evil. In our text, Paul writes to Titus, instructing him to tell the believers on Crete how to react to this sewer of paganism all around them. And in Titus 3, he gives them a strategy for reaching their neighbors. The strategy for reaching Crete, Paul declares, is to demonstrate a changed life. To show your culture what a saved person looks like. To show people that Jesus has changed you and that he can do the same for them. Now, is that not the strategy of Christ? Matthew 5:16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That was his strategy as well. The strategy for impacting a pagan culture, Crete's or ours, is for believers to put his saving power on display so that those who don't know him might become hungry and thirsty for what we have. How then are we to live before a watching world? That's what Paul talks about in Titus 3. 
What must we remember as we live for Jesus in an increasingly pagan culture? Well, the first thing he says is to remember your duty to civil authority. Verse 1 and 2. Put them in mind or remind them to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. Notice the words that he uses there. Submit, obey, be aggressively good. The first word in verse 2 is the word blasphemo. Don't blaspheme. Don't be a brawler. Don't slander or treat with contempt. But be peaceful. That means you avoid quarreling. And that's the opposite of being combative. Be considerate or gentle. One writer says this is the idea of sweet reasonableness. Graciously kind. And then he uses the word meek. Showing courtesy. Now you contrast that respectful, submissive attitude toward government leaders that believers should demonstrate with the acrimony, the disrespect, the outright contempt, the hatred on all fronts in our society today. And it doesn't matter whether the person at the top of the, of the um, list is Clinton or Bush or Obama or Trump or Biden. It makes no difference. Um, Paul says, Titus, tell these believers to demonstrate God's saving power in their life by showing this respectful type of attitude, this gentleness, this courteous attitude towards civil leaders. Did you know Peter said the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2? In verse 9, the apostle says, Believers have been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. How do we show that to a watching world? Peter tells us in verse 13 through 17, it's by submitting to civil authority. I know a fellow who uh, came to our church on occasion, and uh, every time he'd come, he'd come with all these publications and pamphlets. He would accost people with them. Uh, he especially disparaged President Obama. Uh, he was mad, and he was distraught quite a bit in his life. Folks, he wasn't nice to be around. He was always angry. He was always mad. He didn't edify anybody. And so I said to him one day, I said, you know, brother, isn't God sovereign? Do you believe that? Absolutely. Didn't he allow President Obama not only to be elected once, but elected twice? Yeah. Then maybe the Lord had a purpose in that. A purpose that we don't understand. I said, vote your conscience. And I'm glad your pastor said, get out and vote. I don't think I've ever missed an opportunity to vote. So get out and vote your conscience, I said to him. Write letters. Uh, stand up and tell what you believe. Run for office if you want to. <laughs> but remember, our citizenship is not here. It's somewhere else. 
Politicians can't save us. If that was the case, we'd have been saved by Ronald Reagan, but we weren't. It didn't last long, did it? Christ is the answer for our problems. Well, he didn't pay any attention to me. And he got back on the computer. He made mean-spirited remarks about the president. And then he came back and told me, a whole bunch of my unsaved friends, what do they call it? Defriended him. That's right, thank you. If I didn't have her along, I'd be in trouble. You know, I said to him, you think maybe you lost an opportunity with those friends. John Stott underscores the reason why believers should demonstrate this biblical spirit towards civil authorities by saying this, a fighting Christian, one who wants to damn certain politicians and consign the media to hell, isn't winsome and doesn't attract people to Christ. You see, if you're always going around and you're mad all the time, how in the world can you have the joy of the Lord in your life? So Paul says, be respectful to civil leaders. That demonstrates you've got a new life in Christ. You know God is sovereign. You know things are going to fall apart. You do what you can do as a citizen, but you trust in the Lord. And you've got the joy of the Lord in your life. So remember your attitude towards civil authorities. And secondly, he says in verse 3, remember your former life. Remember your former life. But for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hating and hating one another. Paul is saying before you become hostile and angry or inconsiderate, before you attack the unsaved, remember you were once one of them. He lists seven vices. In verse 1 and 2, you've got seven virtues. In verse 3, you've got seven vices, which describe our fallen human nature. He says we were foolish. We lacked understanding. We were ignorant of God. Paul says in Ephesians 4.18, Before Christ, you were darkened in your understanding, alienated from the life of God because of ignorance due to the hardness of heart. Ignorant then disobedient. He says, deceived or led astray. We get our word planet from that word. The idea is having no anchor, living in whim, nothing holding us down. What does drive the unsaved? A multitude of pleasures and passions. Folks are slaves to them. Slaves to money, slaves to status, slaves to fun, slaves to stimulants, slaves to pride. And then the next two, malice and envy. Our old English word envy comes from the Latin to look against. You know, people today have got the attitude, don't get in my way. And don't get in the way of what I want. Or I'll take it from you. That's the attitude. Finally, hating and hating one another. No wonder there's conflicts in the job. No wonder there's conflicts at school. No wonder there's conflicts in government. No wonder there's conflicts in the home. This is why marriages break up. Children hate their parents. And parents put things ahead of their children. Is it any wonder that the world is as it is when it's full of people like that? Which we all were before we came to Christ.
So before we consign the unsaved to hell and wanting to be done with them, remember your own depravity. Remember that God took pity on you, and you should take pity on them. Spurgeon reported that John Bunyan was so full of pity for his hearers that when he preached, and I'm quoting Spurgeon, he often felt he could give his own salvation for his hearers. And then Spurgeon put the knife in and pity the man who hasn't felt the same. I'm afraid Mr. Spurgeon would have pitied me on an occasion or two. Remember your former life. And then thirdly, in verse 4 through 7, remember your salvation. Verse 4 through 7 is one long sentence in the Greek. It reminds us why we're Christians. Why am I no longer ignorant of God? Why am I no longer dead to God? Why am I no longer blind to the truth? Why am I no longer, as verse 3 says, slaves to various passions and pleasures? Or why am I not a satisfied, self-righteous church attender trusting in my fanciful good works to get me to heaven? Why am I not like some of my neighbors, my relatives, my co-workers, shut off from the life of God? It's because of three attributes of God. In verse 4, his loving kindness. In verse 5, his mercy, withholding from me what I deserve. And then in verse 7, his grace, giving to me what I don't deserve. That last song we sang had all of that in it, didn't it? Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. You know, I was listening to a liberal newscaster some time ago spew forth his venom toward Bible-believing Christians. My first response was to think something like this. Boy, wait till God gets a hold of that guy. You ever felt like that? Then I was convicted. Why is that guy like that? Well, as Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, he's a helpless dupe of the devil. And that's true. My attitude toward him and others outside of Christ should be pity, not vindictiveness. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn, I came to save. Aren't you glad for that? What's the difference between that man and me? What's the difference between that man and you? Well, it's that he's never experienced the loving kindness of God. He's never experienced the mercy of God. He's never experienced the grace of God. And you have. That's the only difference. Apart from regeneration, apart from the washing of God's word, the new life of the Spirit, I would be that man. It's only the grace of God that sets us apart. And you see, if you think that way, then you won't be tempted to get mad and unkind and harsh with these people that are dead in their trespasses and sins. You'll feel pity. You'll say, I was like that. But thank God, by his grace and by his mercy and by his loving kindness, I've been set free. 
And finally, if we're going to make an impact for Christ in a pagan culture, we've got to remember our mission. It's in verse 8. This is a faithful saying. These, I, these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. You know what he's saying in a nutshell? Live a saved life before a watching world. The saved of, unsaved have got to see a difference if they're going to be hungry and thirsty for Christ. They've got to see a difference in our life. Notice how he's emphasized that throughout this epistle. For instance, in chapter 2 and verse 7, In all things showing thyself a pattern of what? Good works. Look at verse 14. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Chapter 3, verse 1. Be ready, the last part of it, to every good work. Verse 8, we've read it. These things, uh, we might, might be careful to maintain good works. Verse 14, and let ours also learn to maintain good works. You're not saved by good works, but if you are saved, they'll be evident in your life because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are what? His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. I grew up in a little uh, town in downstate Illinois. You know where, where that is? It's anything south of Chicago is downstate Illinois. They have contempt for anybody. We had a little telephone office in the middle of this little town. It was General Telephone. Anybody ever been on General Telephone? Those were the days when you, it was one ring, you let it go. If there's two rings, you picked it up. I remember my mom said to me one time, she said, Chuck, call your dad at the store. I picked up the phone. Number, please, 319J. Now, how is it that I remember that? It's been about 70 years ago, and I can't remember where I put my glasses. <laughs> you know? Again, I'm glad I've got her. The manager of that telephone uh, station was a man by the, Louis, by the name of Louis Haynes. His wife was the chief switchboard operator. Her name was Frances. Someone said, if you want to know what's going on in town, ask Francis. Well, she was in her late 40s, maybe when she came to the First Baptist Church of Watsika, Illinois. And she heard the gospel. She came forward and received Christ as her personal Savior. About two weeks later, her youngest son was killed in an automobile accident near the town. A couple weeks after that, her husband came to the church. The gospel was preached. The invitation was given. Here he came. My, can you imagine then this little small church maybe had 75, 80 people. And they'd had two adult conversions within a month. They were excited. Then he went up to Louis afterwards and 
congratulating him that he came to Christ and then said, Louis, what was it that brought you to Christ? Was it the death of your son, Lord? He said, no. Well, what was it? He said, it was the utter transformation of my life. She so lived Christ before him. Her life was so changed that he wanted what she had. Folks, that's our mission. To live for Jesus in such a way that people will take knowledge that we've been with him and want what we have. So, if people are going to want what we have, then they've got to see it lived out. We make them hungry and thirsty for Jesus when we respect, obey, and show courtesy toward our civil leaders. When we remember we were once just as the unsaved are, dead, blind, ignorant of God. When we remember that it's all of God that we're now regenerated, experiencing the new life. See, His grace, His mercy, His loving kindness. And when we remember our mission to live Christ before a desperately needy world. Boy, it is a mess, is it not? I never dreamed when I was a kid. I'd see the things that are going on today. And some of you say the same. What's happened? Well, the world's not any darker than it ever was. It's always been dark. There's less light and there's less salt. So we've got to be salty Christians. We've got to live for Jesus and tell other people, hey, I'm just as you are, a lost, guilty sinner. But by his mercy and his grace, he's reached down and changed me. And he can do it for you. That's what we want for our chaplains. Preach the truth. Live for Christ. And they'll come. Let us pray.